Charles Knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is episode 284. Just Jason and I again. We're going to be covering the destruction of the family unit. And Rose has just sent me a text of things that we need to cover. I guess she's getting a lot of requests, so I'll just outline these things to maybe spare a little email. Shoot the Moon is a movie that Jason and I made that's a full-featured two-hour film. Um, if you're a recurring member of Pro777Radio.com, you get free access to the movie. It's on Vimeo. you got to have a Vimeo account, but it's, it's free. We give you a key. Um, if you're a recurring member, I think it's like seven bucks for a week rental or something if you're not a recurring member. Uh, thing about that movie is Jason submitted, I don't know, 29, 30 film festivals. And at first, it seemed like no one was going to touch it because we're basically saying NASA's poppycock. And it's got everything interesting I ever filmed in the sky through my scope or my my uh, other cameras. And then all of a sudden, it started getting picked up. At this point, it's won eight laurels. I think the, the last laurel came from Jaipur, India. Um, we have a t-shirt shop that Jason and Rose run. Uh, Rose just created some shirts, a green, it says here, a green one. And I think it says a white one that says the only contagion is fear. And it's got the Crow logo. Again, recurring members get access to that stuff at no markup. Also, when you're logged in on the Crow777radio.com website, we have hand-type transcripts of every single episode. I'm usually about five or six behind. And those are all hand-typed, and you'll be able to access those if you're a member. And there's like a bulk download if you want to do that. And if you do the bulk download, then I just send you every transcript till the end of time, whenever that may be. Uh, did I get all that, Jason? I think so. That sounds good. Oh, and by the way, uh, for the recurring members, if you are recurring and you go log in on the website, there's a Shoot the Moon link. If you just mouse over it, don't click, a drop-down comes and if you click that drop down, it gives you what you need to request a key for the movie. And that saves us a lot of emails if people remember that. But anyhow, you're ready to jump into the destruction of the family unit. And what a way to start the new year. Yeah, what a way to start the new year. You know, the, this country is far different than it was even in the 70s in my lifetime in terms of what we see around the world, it really feels like the birth rate has just plummeted. You know, you see all this coverage from places like Japan, which, by the way, have tons of places on the UNESCO World Heritage, which, in my mind, is basically a free pass card saying you're going to get saved no matter what happens. And the intangible cultural aspects, all the more. But everywhere you look in Japan, they've got a problem with all the old people who knew all the old ways dying off. And so they're trying to artificially lure people back to UNESCO spots. You can look that up if you want to know what it is to try to keep things together, like making soy sauce the way they did hundreds of years ago, silk, all, all these different kinds of things. And then, of course, there's the heritage sites that have to do with the physical environment. But anyhow, um, anything you want to add before we jump into the timeline of the uh, taking apart of the American family unit? Well, there's certainly method to the madness here. This isn't just happening by accident. No, and I'll try to draw the lines where I can. This will, you know, we've done episodes on music, on different decades, on Sigmund Freud, well, ancillarily Sigmund Freud, Bernays, who's the double nephew. Um, these things are, it's all going to relate back. We've done episodes on Tavistock. Uh, here we're going to cover the predecessor of Tavistock, which is the Frankfurt Group 
or the Frankfurt School. Um, if I'm not mistaken, Jason, those dudes were around before the turn into the 1900s, weren't they? I believe so. Yeah, they're way back. Um, so you can see how long all this has been going on. And at this point where I live here in Rhode Island, when I was a child here, uh, every single family had at least minimally three children. There was one family that had one. Everyone else had three children or better. Some had five or six or some subset in between that. Where I am living now, where I grew up here, there are no children. There is one child in the neighborhood that's shared between two family groups that comes and goes. Um, so even where I am, you can really kind of see what's happened here. Also, I'm beginning to hear that they're claiming, who knows what the, what the news is actually doing, whether they're skewing minds or reflecting. They're, they're claiming that house values are going to go to a 40-year high uh, in 2021, and they're claiming that there is an onslaught of multi-generational homes up for sale, whatever that means, if it's true. I haven't had time to look at these things, but let's, let's jump in here. In today's society, most people in the United States, as well as in many other Western nations, live in cities or suburbs of some sort. However, from the early colonial days and all the way up into the early 20th century, the majority of Americans lived in the countryside and worked on their own farms. The movement of populations from rural locations to urban areas is called urbanization. Urbanization increased in the United States gradually in the early 1800s, but accelerated quickly in the years after the Civil War and the onset of massive industrialization. By 1890, 28% of Americans lived in urban areas, and by 1920, the numbers were shifting so that more Americans were living in city areas than in rural areas from that point forward. So this will shift around as we go into the timeline, of course, in the 50s when everyone's getting a cool car because America's building the best cars in the world. People are able to move from the city center a little ways away, but it doesn't matter anymore because the cities grew out to include or incorporate most of those areas. But here's the thing. Jason and I did an episode where we went at the numbers of birth rate because we're being told that there's too many people in the world all the time. And what we uncovered is that the birth rate has been inclined for a good long while here. And that there are many, I don't know what you'd call them, ancient races. Like, what would you call someone who's Japanese? That's what I'm getting at. Um, they have dipped below the 2.5 reproduction rate, which is claimed, whether it's true or not, has never been recovered from. And that fits with, uh, with what I was just saying about Japan, where so many places they have no children to replace or to teach what they've done up to this point. But as we go through the timeline, uh, you'll begin to get a better picture. And lastly, how many people have ever jumped on a plane like on the east or the west coast and gone over the whole country? What do you notice when you're in that plane? 90% of your flight time is over places where it's just open, open land, whether it's farm or forest or whatever. What I'm getting at is not a city. I've flown and driven across the country, and the bottom line is, no matter what the ding-dongs in charge tell you, there is a whole lot of nothing. There is. And back in the 70s, when we used to go from San Diego to Rhode Island, uh, there were certain parts where you had to time it to get your gas because you knew you had to go so many hundred miles before you might get a good chance to refill again. Um, that's different now, but the point is, is I've driven through, I don't know, 40 some states. The only place that I've never been is really like Florida. Uh, last time I drove, I did go through the deep South. There's a few states way up North. I haven't been in, 
But what you see is when you leave city centers, you're pretty quickly out in very open areas, which again begins to undermine the idea that there's too many human beings because I think in essence, what's actually going on is people packed into the cities. So when you're looking at it from that point of view, it looks like there's way too many people Like go, go to New York City. And it's like, oh my God, give me a break. A nuclear family, elementary family, or conjugal family, these terms are interchangeable depending upon where you're looking, is a family group consisting of two parents and their children. Nuclear families typically center on a married couple and any number of children. There are some variations on the concept, including half and stepchildren, but this is the general idea. Some sociologists and anthropologists consider the nuclear family as the most basic form of social organization. Wow, nukes actually exist, or maybe what we're going to cover here is how they nuked the nuclear family, um, which was social strategy, and we'll get into that down the line. An extended family is a family that extends beyond the nuclear family, consisting of parents, such as a father, mother, and their children, but also includes aunts, uncles, grandparents, and cousins, all living in the same household wasn't too long ago. Um, if we, I guess people like to call a generation 20 years, I guess I'm okay with that. Um, if you look at it from the point of view of, of who would be interacting, 20 years is a good separation, whether we accept that to be correct or not. Um, I would say in the 70s, uh, this extended family was still a much larger part of living in America than it is now. In the 1800s, I came across numbers stating that 75 to 90% of families lived on farms. Those numbers dwindled quickly from the late 19th century onward and is now said to be less than 2%. If you think about what that means, think about what that means. Back in this time, it was families producing all the things that we need to live. What do farms do? Mostly they produce food, right? Other things too, um, but the things that we need to live. And so if you think about back then who was doing it, it was families that were typically farming families. Who's doing it now? If someone asked you who's doing all the farming now, you will come quickly to the realization that it's corporation. And so the diversity is one thing that's lost in the switchover of farming in the old way to the new way. And by the way, a lot of these people were immigrants. So they were bringing culture and custom uh, to their farms that have been going on in the old world, if we're talking about America. And when corporation gets a hold of, of course, the bottom line is the only thing that matters. Maybe in the 1800s, who knows how many types of potato we have. Now, 80 or 90% of it's one kind of potato, Burbank. So you can see the dwindling down, the diversity going away, and the control of food production shifting to corporation. 1800s farm life would almost certainly consist of an extended family situation. The entire family would be pitching in to one degree or another with the running of the farm. This built tight family units and helped keep morality running high. That's really going to end up being a big part of this morality. Um, so granddad taught me how to do stuff. He taught my dad how to do stuff. When I have a child, um, I will know what granddad taught me and we'll keep passing this down. But there's a morality thread that goes through, um, which... I don't know, in some ways, feels like we held on to partially into the 50s, and that's really when it starts to come undone, certainly post-World War II. Although film was the first form of modern entertainment that came to be after theater, radio is the first form of entertainment and distraction that was easily accessible every single day and for many hours of the day. 
Radio really got going strong in the 1920s, and by the 1930s, it was a very common thing in most households. You know, what a lot of this is going to come down to is who built that. And it seems like an abstract idea, but in the last episode image I did, I lifted Who lyrics, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. This is what's going on here. Has anyone looked up the story of the War of the Worlds? That was wholly driven by radio. Uh, Orson Welles was supposedly the guy that did it. I think he was like 24 or 25 when he did it uh, with the Mercury Theater. Um, That's all about mind, right? You can see that the queue-up has always been the same. Even back in the radio days, it's just they had to contend with a higher moral value. So they had to be careful with what they did. Um, But go back and look at the story of the War of the Worlds when it happens, and we're still re-echoing that idea every four or five years. Someone's going to make that into a movie again. But if you think that the people who made that, who made radio, who controlled radio, that's what we're talking about here. Um, What did they do with it? Well, go look at War of the Worlds. There's a precursor to the kind of false news cycle that we live in every day now uh, because the moral value and the higher-mindedness has basically been juiced out of all of us over all these decades. Now, when you're talking about the 1930s, these would be the people who are children and grandchildren of this old way of life, the old farmers, immigrants, a lot of them. And it would have been a very different mindset compared to what was to come years down the road. Right. So I'm in my 50s. To put it in context, my parents were born in the 30s. Their grandparents may have been before the 1900s or right at the beginning of the 1900s. So that's my grandparents uh, back through the 1900s. So they're my great-great-grandparents are in the 1800s. And so there's look how close we are already to the supposed civil war. Just to put a frame of reference, how quickly all this has happened. Newspapers as mass media, as well as billboards for advertising, had been around for many, many years before radio came to be. Radio, however, was something altogether new, and its power as a medium must not be underestimated. Newspapers had the potential to reach a wide audience, and most certainly did, and oftentimes with several pressings a day. Radio, however, had the potential to reach nearly everyone. One did not need to know how to read to be influenced by radio, and one could even be doing something else entirely and still have the radio on to be listened to. This unprecedented reach made radio a massive instrument of social change. Radio didn't care how much money you had in the bank, how good your house was, what color your skin was, or what god you chose to worship. If you could hear and you clicked the dial, you were welcome. The same messages were being heard by all who chose to listen, and that made it a tool for social engineering. Social engineering, you say? Well, let's look at that idea for a minute. What does social engineer require, first and foremost? Uh, The removal of diversity. So how does radio remove diversity? Well, everybody all the way across this country may tune in every night to listen to the shadow knows or whatever the old radio episodes were, and there goes your diversity. Had they not all turned on the radio, each individual family unit would have been doing something unique, thinking something unique, with the exception of around Christmas time, we're probably thinking about Christmas things, which again is a form of social programming. Because as we've shown, Christmas was made on Fifth Avenue in New York, and Bernays is not far off that either. So the point I'm making is before this thing comes into everyone's house, 
everyone is very diversified thinking about the concerns and the living ideas of where they live and what they need to be thinking about. And then radio comes along. Now, every night, everybody sits down at the same time and they all have the same thing put into their minds. But Jason also mentioned newspapers. Does anyone want to get an accurate portrayal, believe it or not, from film, voted often the best movie of all time, Citizen Kane? Wait for it, Kane. They tell you the truth about the newspapers and how early on the rich guys said, go get the 12 most influential papers and buy them up. And this will go all the way through. The, everybody knows who's being satired in that because he was a real guy. He's the guy who built that castle in California. Um, but newspapers had already done it. So no longer were newspapers local concerns by suppose some local investigator or however it went, they were being bought up way the hell back early 1900s by some very rich people. One of the first shots is literally echoed in Citizen Kane. I think it's go find the 12 most influential papers and buy them. But you're being told the truth about newspapers. So there's two sides of the same coin. The switch from print to radio. Radio's ever-growing presence in the home also heralded the beginning of mass consumer culture in the United States. By 1941, Two-thirds of radio programs carried advertising. Radio allowed advertisers to sell products to an already captive audience. This new kind of mass marketing capability ushered in a new age of consumer culture. And I bet that Edward Bernays was pretty good with radio ads. You know, he was. You know, even Santa Claus is a marketing strategy. We've shown that way back. But what's weird about this, when I think about it, it's almost like we're coming full circle again here. Like for a period of time in my life, um, the advertising put something in your head you thought you needed. So you'd go to a mall to buy it, right? That's going away now. How does it work now? You stay at home, you go online, you order it, it's delivered. Well, back in this time, it was similar, believe it or not. You had all this advertising and there'd be like a Sears catalog and, and there were big ticket items too like farm equipment or even pianos or a house. Yeah. Or a house. Exactly. Um, and you would order and it would be delivered. Um, so we've almost come full circle on this idea. But the point is before this advertising was inserted into the mass consciousness, people made what they need, or they would save up to get what they perceived they needed. Now a whole other thing is going on. An idea is being planted in a mind that would not have otherwise been there. And therein is the power of advertising. Therein is the power of marketing. And who the hell knows when it's a mass, you know, a mass effort where hundreds of thousands of minds are being introduced with the same idea. That's got to have more power, doesn't it, than just a few individuals? This was the beginning of the I want lots of stuff era, which we, of course, are just drowning in today. And radio helped make that happen. Of course, newspapers and things like that, they, for years, had always had advertisements and things like that. But nothing could compare to this constant bombardment once they figured out how to target people with ads properly. And, of course, you had people like Bernays figuring out how to get the message clearly and concisely into the minds of many people and wanting the next thing. And if we want to talk about Bernays for a moment, he was so successful because he figured out that if you tied whatever it is you're trying to sell to an emotion, an emotional trigger in a person, it would greatly increase the desire for said product or service. 
well, the, the proof in that pudding is he's responsible for women smoking. There was a point of time when women didn't smoke in this country. He's the guy who undid that. But in my lifetime, this idea of hoarding or having way too much stuff, uh, I would estimate from what I have witnessed that that really picked up at the end of the 80s and into the 90s. Then it was common to see houses that were just packed with crap. And you got to realize you know, in the seventies, people were still inheriting what their parents or their grandparents had and the houses were not jammed. And you know, it's weird because in a way electronics plays into this, uh, in the early seventies, you had a TV, you might've had electric can opener. Your phone was on the wall. There wasn't that many electronic devices, but by the time you get to the end of the eighties, you're needing more outlets. By the time you get into the nineties, that's really the clutter is so many electronic devices. I mean, think about it now. If you look in any one room of your house, how many electronic devices are there? But that doesn't speak to the kind of hoarding that we see now where houses are just jam-packed with hyper-materialism crap that nobody really needs. You know, there's an interesting little poke at us in modern society that was in the new Dracula series that came out just this past year, written by the same two guys who did the newer Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch, but in this Dracula, the first two episodes take place in the 1800s, but then he is incapacitated and doesn't come back till the modern era. And he breaks into a poor person's house, and he asks the woman there, are all of these objects yours? Because of course, the entire place is just packed full of crap. Yeah, we, we reference it all the time. As a matter of fact, some of it is pre, pre-predicted. Like, look at Back to the Future, 19, what is it, 85, I think? Um, the first Back to the Future. They are absolutely showing all these things that people now don't even realize. Like, oh, really, future boy, who's the president? Ronald Reagan. Oh, really? That's funny, future boy. Is Jerry Lewis your vice president? The other thing is, do you have a TV? Well, we've got two TVs. Oh, that's impossible. At the point that was made, I would estimate it was not that common. For a matter of fact, it was that period. We were late um, because we weren't that rich. I was a family of teachers. We had just switched to our first color TV about mid-80s. Most people had probably already started to do it. But having numerous TVs in the mid-80s, that was not so commonplace yet for everybody. So That's when it started because that's when cable television really took off like mad too. Right. Well, cable didn't make it where I was on the outskirts, kind of East County of San Diego. That Until the end of the 80s, it wasn't even really easy to have cable. When MTV broke, we used to have to go in closer to the incorporated cities like La Mesa to go to our friend's house to watch MTV because they had cable. So you can see what's going on here. And by the time cable comes, I remember my father always said, we're not getting those damn underground cables. (laughs) I didn't know what the hell he meant when I was young, but I know what he means now. Another of radio's most important impacts was with music. Before the advent of radio, most popular songs were distributed through piano sheet music and word of mouth and played live, of course. This would limit the types of music that would have the capability to gain any sort of national prominence. Although recording technology had emerged several decades before radio, music played live over the radio sounded better than it did on a record played in the home, and it was much easier to just turn the radio on. Live music performances became a staple of early radio. Many performance venues even had their own radio transmitters to broadcast live shows. There's another bizarre side effect of all this. 
I had a member of my family that used to go get old pianos and refurbish them and turn them over. And it's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. However in the heck they first invented the piano, it is so complex as to blow your mind. And they've been here a long time. But all these pianos from the late 1800s all the way up to the mid-1900s, people were dumping them in the 90s. Um, but what we learned was there were literally hundreds of piano makers in this country back in that period. And by the time we were going out to buy them so my family member could you know, refurbish them and turn them over, what we found was there were like two or three piano, major piano makers left. And it got to the point where these beautiful handmade pianos, you couldn't give them away. And I think part of it is the weight of them. But the other side effect of that was back in the day, most families had a musical instrument on hand. And I think maybe the onset of radio and media start to winnow away how many people are musical in their household. But that's just speculation on my part. And if it wasn't in the household, it certainly was in the pub. Oh, absolutely. And like you say, it was all played locally. So many people. Um, it, it's a bit like, I don't know, typing and piano seem to be common things that were learned um, that have now kind of gone away. Typing as a class isn't a thing anymore. Everyone just does it on their own. But so few people take piano lessons or anything else. Uh, I, I was fortunate. There were always musical instruments in the house uh, that I grew up in. Something that I don't think anybody really thinks about or appreciates anymore, unless you're a historian, is the concept that the piano was mind-numbing when it first came out to the composers because of the capability of expressiveness. The piano versus the harpsichord were just, even though they look kind of the same, very, very different. The harpsichord is a plucked string on the inside, almost like plucking a guitar, but the piano with its hammer capability you could just do night and day difference of expressiveness. And I don't think people really even appreciate what a real piano is anymore compared to the way people would have been so impressed years ago. Go online and look up all the old pianos that were made in this country, Germans that had emigrated, all these different people. They are beautiful hand-carved pianos, but there's a commonality between the onset of the piano and the onset of rock and roll that I thought about not too long ago. It's the idea of being able to sustain a note because the piano got that. And so when you had a plucked harpsichord, the idea of doing staccato and other things, it was all, you couldn't vary your pitch too much or your sound or how long it sustained. When the piano comes along, all that changed. Well, what's, what's the similarity between guitars, right? One of the things is when they start getting all the effects, how long you can sustain a note. So that goes across more than one genre. As the 1920s rolled into the following decades, there were more and more people living in cities and being in range to tune in and hear the radio's messages being broadcast. However, even the power of radio had to give way to the next massive leap in social engineering manipulation, television. There it is, and I'll say it again. Who made those things? Who controlled those things? They always knew the power of it because we could go back to the time of kings and queens if there was such a time, and the importance of theater was used in a similar way to shape public opinion. But I'll say it again. When radio was here for the first time, the biggest thing that changed is now all these thousands or hundreds of thousands of minds were being inserted with the same ideas and the diversity was being winnowed down. So when the messaging gets controlled, massive swaths of society are getting the same idea. As for television, 
Jason and I covered the onset. One of the earliest broadcast programs is the Queen something I've forgotten. It was done in England in a Lord's mansion. And wait for it. What was the date? That's right. September 11th was the date. Uh, They always knew the power of what was about to happen, and they always had an intended direction. And you and I are living as a result of that intended direction. Right now, turn on your TV. What's it doing? What's the one word every television in the world is saying over and over and over right now? By the way, I heard the CDC just released some numbers saying that their Covidius minimus, uh, 98% of people are recovering. There's your worldwide pandemic. I know we have a lot of new listeners, so there are plenty of episodes we've done on television. But as I do a quick breakdown here of how television started integrating into society, just make no mistake how incredibly important and critical the concept of television was to the controllers. This one thing changed everything for their capability to manipulate society. That's a fact. It's made fun of. And what's that? Uh old-timey Clooney flick uh, that's based on the Odyssey. Oh, brother, where art thou? Uh, They come up to the early radio station, and someone asks the current senator, are you going to do some politic? And he says, shut up. We're mass communicating here, you idiot. Don't you get it? We're mass communicating. And there is the dividing line. Now, hundreds of thousands of minds instantaneously are going to start to be filled with the same idea. Diversity will start to go bye-bye. And while radio just had the audio side of it, the capability to deliver pictures in real time, man, that's just a whole other world opening up. Radio on steroids plus, right? They knew it. They knew what they were getting into. The world's first television stations first started appearing in the United States in the late 1920s and early 1930s. Radio was still king at this point, however. While there was a radio in so many homes at this point, Televisions were still a very new, rare, and expensive thing to own. It would take until 1938 before American electronic television sets were being produced and released commercially. They were an instant hit, and the battle for the minds of men was truly on from this point forward. No doubt, truly on. And I would point out that's another thing from Back to the Future. Um, You're looking at a period of time in the 50s when he's supposedly back in time. That's really the dividing line. That's really where televisions, pretty much everyone's going to have them, with few exceptions. Uh, The price has come down. It's black and white. But at that point, they also make fun of the idea of reruns. Imagine that. No such thing as reruns in the mid-50s. No, a lot of things were live. But yes, through the 1940s and really into the 1950s, radio was still on top. And nearly the majority of the delivery for World War II came from radio. Right. The other point I would make is in the 50s when the car really starts to take over American culture and like things like the freeways, the Eisenhower five-star freeway idea that goes across. I remember still seeing those signs when I was in the 70s coming across. But now there were freeways and there were the best cars in the world. And guess what? Every car has had a radio at that point, right? So the reach is unrivaled. By the 1950s, the television had just as normal of a household presence as the radio had previously and still did at this time. Television programming was in full swing by the 1950s, as was the concept of the nuclear family over the extended family. 
The time of the nuclear family is suggested to be from 1950 until 1965. The social engineers had managed to whittle away the self-reliance of the old agrarian families and get the majority of the people hoarded into cities and suburbs. This caused the destruction of the extended family, for the most part, for sprawling houses on large tracts of land were not to be had in the city. Morality was still pretty strong even into the 1950s, with viewpoints and values being in stark contrast to anything we might see today. Although I couldn't find the original source, several articles referenced a survey from 1957 in which it was stated that 57% of those surveyed said that they believed that adults who preferred to be single were immoral or neurotic. But the big guns were pointed at American society to bring about the family unit's total destruction in the coming decades. There it is. Maybe, and this this is as close as I can come with my life experience, what I know from my parents and my grandparents. The golden age for America was the 1950s. Everything had changed. So much of the technology coming off the back of World War II, there was this idea. Everybody gets married. Everyone has a family. And it was a different America. And there was, I don't like the word, the so-called nuclear family unit. And still, to some degree, the extended family unit. We used to come all the way across the country to two parts of the country that were thousands of miles away from San Diego to see grandparents on one side of the family and grandparents on the other side of the family. But that was all about to come to the end. And it's almost like somebody built a wall on the division from the 50s to the 60s. Because once the 60s get here, and we'll touch on the key points, because really, to this day, I guess I would estimate that 62 is where the bomb gets dropped openly in daylight. Just too many people are sleeping to understand what's going on. Stepping back in time a bit, we need to discuss the concept of food production and what quality of food people were eating. Going back to the 1800s, people were growing and raising their own food supplies. The farm the extended family lived on produced enough food for themselves, but not usually an abundance more than that. The food should not have been of poor quality unless there were uncontrollable environmental conditions at any point. As we move into the turn of the century, urbanization and industrialization were changing everything in regard to what people were eating. Somewhere along the line, you're going to get the Max Gerson story, uh, the story that puts him on the road where he begins to figure out you can cure cancers with organic juices of the, of the correct type and nutrition. When he's young, as the story goes, is this new thing came around called chemical fertilizer. And the first thing he noticed is that when it was used, all the worms went away. And that's what alerted him that something was wrong. So we're looking at the period of time where kind of wholesale science is going to step in. Chemical fertilizers, everything is about to change. And the difference is, is the way people are doing prior, they'd inherited from their parents who'd inherited it from their parents. And how far back in time this goes, Lord only knows, but it was organic and untampered with from a chemical viewpoint. And I would further point out, uh, anyone can go look up when the water supplies begin to get messed with because that's going to play into it. And I hope by now that people are seeing what it is we're getting at here. All these points that we're making, even if they seem a little apart from each other, are the different knots in the noose being put around our necks. And it really didn't take that long. It was really the changeover from the 19th into the 20th century when this stuff really went into high gear. 
open free fall. I mark the day as uh, November 22nd, 1962. There's the fake nuclear bomb drop. There it is. There are other events that play into it, and there have always been events. Even if we take closer look at the supposed world wars, it's the same same train coming, isn't it? But when we get in America up to that point, we were the greatest. We could do no wrong. We had the best of everything. But that was the mindset that was being pushed by the very same places that are trying to tell you everything is going to fall to hell right now. Um, so literally, is is could this all be hung on the doorstep of media? I think it could. Um, you know, we had Giancarlo on, and he interacts greatly with uh, the Mennonite communities and others, and they are completely unaffected by this so-called pandemic. And he walked up to one of them as he was doing shopping and said, how come your community is not affected by the pandemic? And the guy looked him dead in the eye and says, because we don't have televisions or cell phones. There it is. Mass communication. Is that really the difference between sanity and not, I would ask? Could be. And speaking of the world wars, to show you how different things were, people did not want anything to do with what they called foreign wars. Especially World War I, things were a little different by the time the second one came around, but even that needed some prodding. People thought that America should worry about America. Yeah, it's a far cry between the nonsense that had to get us into World War II that media had to do and push, uh, which basically comes down to Pearl Harbor um, and fear, to what happened when I was in the Marine Corps, the first Gulf War. Hardly any effort expended um, compared to the effort they had to expend to get everyone to buy in uh, to World War II. Uh, but then again, the mass communication was much more embedded by the time the Gulf Wars came around, wasn't it? Oh, but big time. Goes to show you. The output of crops and livestock raised by the remaining farmers needed to be increased to meet the demand of the population shift to the cities. Not only were people moving to the cities en masse, but significant immigration was also occurring. Industrial methods of food production were conceived of and introduced. Some of these were mass production of crops and newly invented preservatives to keep them available on the store shelves far longer than ever before imaginable. A new term was introduced, that of convenience foods, a good example of which is Jell-O. Americans cooked most meals at home at this point and often had traditional recipes from the countries many of the people had emigrated from. They were often purchasing from stores and not getting as much fresh food as they would have known before. The first grocery store opened in 1916 in Memphis, Tennessee, and it is unlikely that anyone listening to this can even conceive of the concept of a time before there being some sort of market available to buy food items in. During the Great Depression, a new problem occurred, that of being able to get enough calories to survive from day to day. So one of the things that's pretty much gone away in my lifetime is when I was young, I remember everybody canned and jarred everything they'd grown that year, um, and they stored it in their basements or other places. That's a pretty rare thing to see going on. And so this is part of the shift to the supermarkets because they do not preserve foods in the same way. And as we know, a lot of chemicals get used in other things that are a lot less healthy. And by the way, we didn't really touch on, Jason, when the TV came in the 50s. wasn't long before the TV dinner came along, too. That's right. Yeah, which is another example of the nutrition fall. Well, it also started destroying the concept of the sit-down family dinner. 
well, put it around the TV in a lot of places. And also the idea of cooking a complete healthy dinner. For my part, my family didn't do TV dinners. I don't ever remember. Yeah, I just, I don't ever remember doing, I guess I was exposed to them at some point, but it was not a regular normal thing. We always cooked our meals. A TV dinner would definitely be considered a convenience food. Well, that's another thing. As we get into the kind of TV generation, when I was young and people went out to dinner, that was, for most people, uh, it was like living it up. It was a big deal. Yeah, you're going to have a special night. You're going to dress up. We'll go out to dinner. <laughs> Look how it is now with Grubhub. There are tons of families that order in every single night of the week. Uh, that's a big shift. And I think that can probably center around the mass communication and marketing idea. Well, that also goes hand in hand with the quality of the food being delivered. Of course, there's still nice restaurants that people will still, in this day and age, get dressed up to go out to, but you're certainly not putting on a suit and tie to go to McDonald's. Well, that's another thing that I've noticed. There are a lot of places around here um, that try to do local because it still is some farming around here, and those places have been wiped out with the lockdown. It was okay for the multinationals to stay open. You know, if you're Walmart, sure, you keep your doors open. If you're Home Depot, but all those smaller restaurants that were trying to push back to more organic, locally sourced foods, those places have been just trampled on by what's gone on here. You got to wonder about intent. Well, Walmart is essential, don't you know? Is it? This trend continued significantly as the decades rolled by, with food becoming more and more laced with preservatives, artificial colors and flavors, and various other chemicals that would never have been consumed in days gone by. Once the 1950s are in full swing, the concept of fast food comes into play with the behemoth of them all, McDonald's, opening its first store in 1953 in Downey, California. While I have no doubt that the food one could purchase and consume in 1953 is vastly different from what is called and sold as food in the 21st century, it started a trend of more food of inferior quality being consumed more and more often as the years go by. You know, I, I think it's the Kroc family. Um, they're known as big rich people in San Diego. They put up YMCAs and all kinds of other multi-million dollar projects. But wasn't it nice of them to found themselves in a place that tells you where the quality is going? Downey. McDonald's is an interesting story. Of course, there was only the McDonald's brothers, I think it was, that started it. And it probably was just a diner-ish style. And the food probably really wasn't that bad. Ray Kroc saw the concept and turned it into... <laughs> I don't even know what you'd call McDonald's now. It's barely food. As a matter of fact, I'm sure a lot of people have seen these funny little experiments people like to do where they'll take a burger and fries and things like that, leave them out for a year, and it barely looks any different a year later. And that should tell you everything. Well, what about that, that guy, uh, Morgan Spurlock, said, I'm going to eat McDonald's for 30 days, and this will talk about the marketing too. So he would go up to order... And if part of the marketing for that branch he was at, they offered him to supersize, he'd say, thank you. Why, yes, I will. He'll accept the marketing officer uh, offer. And so he eats for, I think it's just a month, and he's getting tested medically. And at the end of 30 days of eating only McDonald's, they told him his liver is about to move out, right? Or something like that. He was told that he was literally dying. And the doctor couldn't believe it. He knew what he was doing. 
And even the doctor in the documentary, I recall, being surprised at just how quickly his body started to fail. Thankfully, his girlfriend or wife, whatever she was, was a chef of some sort, but into organic and all that. And as soon as it was over, he immediately started eating healthy again. And thankfully, his health turned right around. So that tells you everything right there. 30 days, and he was going downhill fast. Well, you got to wonder if that's revelation of method, don't you? And what's the most stunning about all that is that that was a pretty, I mean, very, very few people in this country of mass media didn't see that. And I'm sure it didn't hurt their sales one bit, you know, so they basically showed this isn't food. Um, But to my knowledge, their sales never went down, having been shown that. He did a second one. It wasn't about any specific fast food place, but he did it on the concept of the chicken sandwich where he did it himself. And what he showed this time was mass factory farming and all that and just what Big Agra does and all that. It was appalling, of course, and eye-opening to say the least. This is what you are eating. And if you want to see just how bad things can be, check that out. I've watched it and I, oh God, I'm glad I don't eat that stuff anymore. Well, you got to, I mean, it's not hard to tell if you want to pay attention. Like the the latest big push in, in the kind of corporatization of food is, hey man, this was made with plants, so it's better than you. But they, all of them, all the companies say the same thing. Hey, this was made with plants. My first question is what plants? First of all, what plants is that made out of and how is it made? And it's so bad that even South Park is making fun of it because basically it's known now that they create this totally processed plant-based goo um, that's probably worse for you than the meat that you're trying to replace. It's quite a thing. Yeah, I saw that one and they really <laughs> were just sticking it to the concept. Yeah. It really is just goo. It's mass-produced factory goo of what was once plants, but God only knows what you want to call that now. Well, you know, this this is the concept of what Gerson tried to show everybody. These plants that everyone can get access to that are pretty common if they're organic with no chemicals and you juice them so there's still life in the juice when you drink it, it's almost miraculous to our eyes in the modern age because we're so kind of used to going to McDonald's and everywhere else to get our dead food. And still that concept hasn't caught on. And I think the main reason is, is because it's so much work. It's so much work to go out and find food of that quality and then prep it up in the way that it needs to be done, that only the most kind of hardcore health food people uh, will take the time to do it. They'd rather just order a TV dinner or a burger. The 1950s brought in the music genre of rock and roll. Radio, television, and even film, all were there to do their part to cement this new sound into the youth of the era. But 1950s rock and roll was nothing compared to what was going to come next in the decade of the 60s that took what was left of the family and leveled a divide-and-conquer strategy the likes of which was never seen before. And as we get into hour two, we're going to start breaking down just all of the horrors, as much as I love a lot of what was in the 1960s, that were done to us. The 1960s was the time when everything pretty much fell. Well, it's hard to admit all those things you love are actually a fugazi. And by the way, and the fit was not exempt from this, they were setting the stage. They were dealing with higher moral values. They were dealing with a time when men still wore hats. And when a woman walked into the room, you stood your ass up. 
she wanted to sit down, you pulled out her chair. There were higher morals still at that time, but is it lost on anyone? You know, look at the big bopper and Buddy Holly, who has the similar name. He's a cricket instead of a beetle, right? Go look at that whole media extravaganza. They're already planting the seeds, but Jason's hitting it on the head. The 60s is like nothing we've ever seen before, and how quickly it changes everything is truly astonishing. But that does bring hour one of episode 284 to a close. Is there anything we need to get in before we wrap up and come back for hour two? This is the first episode of the new year, and we felt it was important to really touch on a concept that is hitting us and hitting us hard right now. Because what is being done, not just in the United States, but all over the world, it's an attack and a war, really, on the little person, the individual, the family business. And we're trying to paint the picture here of how everything was set up to do what they're doing now. Yeah, what's most astonishing about this is what's being done is being done without the authority to do so. And the people who know how to stand stand up and hold their position are, in fact, holding their position. I have... I don't I can't tell you how many emails I have from people working in the medical industry that have used some of the documents that we've covered by others to opt out of all these wait for it offers. That's what they are. But um, we're starting to see echoes where I am of all these small businesses have had enough of being limited in this way or that. And they're starting to push back. But that is not what's coming over the evening news. And if they do it, they do it in a way that is very dismissive and it's not much of a story, 15, 20 seconds. But what they are doing on the mass media here, which I just told my wife this morning, is they have this new five second long thing that plays weirdly right before the news, the local news where your weather and things will be starts where it says literally your turn is coming next. It shows a dude getting a shot in the arm and it's like seconds. You don't even really have time to think of it. And then they play that tone that's been added into the local news. I don't know, over the last six, seven months, this weird chord, which is kind of serious, minory, I don't know how to describe it. Ominous chord that they play. It's a digital chord that precedes all their little announcements. Now it's like Pavlov's dogs. The point is, is this is aimed at the individual and it's all being done without authority from my point of view. And if you know how to conduct yourself, you can opt out of so much of what's going on here. Anyhow, I, I'm going to wrap it up here, Jason. That That is the end of the first hour for 284. We're going to come back and we're going to get into so many things that we've covered in one way, shape, or for, or you know, or another before. And if people are interested in those other episodes, Rose, of course, can direct anyone to an episode number. Because of the censorship, I have to play games with my titling and I never write the guest name in the title to spare them from the censorship that we always have to contend with. Anyhow, join us over at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W, 777radio.com. The second hour will be posted for members. And there it is, man. And this is the first episode. So I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era because we're probably there. There it is, man. Cheers.
beast of knowing. 